0: This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals only. Welcome to the Diabetes Knowledge and Practice podcast, your bi-weekly source of news, views, and updates in diabetes care. Today's episode is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk, who has had no influence on the content or choice of faculty. As always, I'm James Bannister.
1: And I'm Moa Phillips. This week's episode is brought to you from sunny Barcelona, where the 55th annual meeting of the European Association for the Study of Diabetes took place. The five-day event explored the full spectrum of diabetes treatment from glycemic control through to reducing the risk of cardio-renal outcomes. We are fortunate enough to gain insightful interviews with a number of leading experts across a range of topics.
0: In case a particular topic is of interest to you, do feel free to skip ahead to the particular interview. These are as follows. A discussion of the Pioneer Trials with Professor Steve Bain. Treatments in type 1 diabetes, including SGLT2 inhibitors with Professor Dr. Thomas Danner advances in peptide therapies for diabetes with Professor Jens Juhl-Holst, and highlights from the CONCLUDE trial with Professor Didac Mauricio.
1: Each interview lasts approximately five minutes. So let's begin with Professor Steve Bain. Since the recording of this interview, oral semaglutide has been approved in the United States by the FDA.
2: Okay, so the pioneer trial program is looking at an oral version of semaglutide. Semaglutide is a once weekly GLP one that's currently uh, marketed and used in the UK and elsewhere in the world, um, but has to begin as a subcutaneous injection. The pioneer studies are looking at a modified version of semaglutide which can now be taken as a once daily oral tablet. The way that this has been made available as an oral medication is by uh, the addition of something called SNAC, which somehow manages to modify the pH of the local environment in the stomach and enhance the ability of this magnetide mo- molecule to get through into this circulation. And once in the circulation then it essentially behaves in exactly the same way as the subcutaneous version. So the Pioneer's trial program has been looking at The use of oral semaglutide in different settings, so starting with people who are on no therapy whatsoever, so treatment naïve patients, and going through to the addition of semaglutide oral to insulin. These are data that have actually been published today to uh, coincide with the presentation at the symposium.
0: Wonderful. And that brings me neatly onto my next question.
2: So those results you mentioned,
0: Pioneer 8, looked at combining oral semaglutide with basal insulin. Based on these data and experience with existing add-on methods such as uh, the pre-mixed insulin and GLP combination or once-weekly GLPs on top of basal insulin, could you comment on if the oral formulation improved outcomes or patient experience on the medication?
2: So in terms of longer-term outcomes, these are clearly short regulatory studies typically 26 up to 52 weeks in length so we don't know anything about the longer term outcomes but we can surmise that they will be similar to those seen with other uh, GLP-1 receptor agonists that lower blood blood glucose, lower weight and also have a beneficial effect on on blood pressure. Um, In terms of how these things will all fit together. It's very difficult. Nice currently would suggest that after basal insulin has failed, that you might progress to a fixed ratio insulin such as a premix. Uh, others would suggest that you would go on to a basal bolus regime, perhaps with the intermediate step of a basal plus, meaning basal insulin plus a mealtime insulin, then two mealtime insulins, and so on. Uh, there is of course the option of adding in GLP-1, which these days can be weekly subcutaneous injection. In theory, if people have been through the modern guidelines, they would have already experienced GLP-1 before basal insulin, but there's lots of patients out there who went on to basal insulin way before GLP-1s were available. And indeed, there are many people who are on basal bolus regimes where they really have inadequate control and are, are not manipulating the insulin dose in a way that they should and so would probably benefit from just basal insulin GLP-1. Whether it's going to make it easier for the transition to basal insulin GLP-1 just by virtue of it being a tablet rather than an injection is difficult to say. There is the issue that the tablet has to be taken 30 minutes before food or breakfast. Um, In the clinical trials that hasn't been a drawback but it may be in real life. And then you look at where the fixed ratio combinations of basal insulin and GLP-1 fit. So Phi that we currently have in the UK and saliqua that's coming through in the very near future. So it all gets to be really complicated. And I think it boils down to it being individual choices for individual patients.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for all your time today.
1: Next, we have Professor Dr. Thomas Danner discussing the SAGE study, suitable targets in type 1 diabetes, and the role of SGLT2 inhibitors in type 1 diabetes.
0: Uh, So first of all, looking at the results of the SAGE study presented on Tuesday morning, uh, what sort of key highlights do you want to bring out to the audience, and what do these mean for changes in clinical practice?
3: Well, I think it is, uh, of course, uh, for for many years we have been relying on blood glucose monitoring all over the world and uh, it's slowly shifting that more and more people are using continuous glucose monitoring and uh, I personally feel for good reason uh, they are doing so. Um, Of course, it is still not reimbursed in many places. Uh, Their access is limited uh, due to uh, simple access issues. But in those countries where there is easy access, uh, people are using it in type 1 diabetes and they have of course uh, the added benefit that they don't only have point measurements of glucose but they're changing to analyzing glucose trends and uh, this uh, is not immediately leading to an improvement because only when it is accompanied with education that's really the gap that, that we need to fill to really reap the benefits of of these new technologies uh, in having adequate patient education. And I guess that's uh, the work in the future to to have that uh, available around the world.
0: Wonderful, thank you. And another key focus we're seeing at this congress is the use of SGLT2 inhibitors in type 1 diabetes. Could you please comment on how these should be used or any sort of particular patients that would benefit from their use?
3: Yes, well these SGLT uh, 2 inhibitors are known to have uh, improved the cardiorenal outcome of patients with type 2 diabetes and only recently have been shown uh, also to have a beneficial effect in people even without diabetes. So it is quite uh, easy to think, well, type 1 diabetes patients are of particular risk for car- uh, negative cardiorenal outcomes, that this would also be a long-term benefit in, in those patients. And there have been uh, three major uh, trial programs for empagliflozin, dapagliflozin, and sotagliflozin as adjunct therapy to insulin in type 1 diabetes, adults with type 1 diabetes, and only recently the European Medicines Agency has granted uh, uh, an approval both to sotagliflozin and dapagliflozin. Uh, And there we saw in the studies really a multitude of positive effects. Number one, of course, you have an improvement of glycemic control. Number two, you also have a reduction in these glycemic variability, glycemic fluctuations. Uh, And this is what really the patients immediately tell you once they are on on the drug. And this also leads to improved patient-related outcomes if you use questionnaires to, to, to address that. And another point is you lose weight because the mechanism of action is of course that you have a glucose loss through your urine and so uh, weight approximately three kilograms less weight is uh, is another uh, positive effect. If you have elevated blood uh, pressure, again, this will also likely reduce uh, your elevated blood pressure. So there is a lot of positive cardio renal outcomes likely. Uh, If we look in the distant future, of course we don't have these studies, uh, but in the short term there is enough to really think of many patients using it. However, and here's a caveat, we have to balance that um, because these uh, drugs lead to a metabolic shift towards increased ketone production, and so all of the studies show that as a class effect we have more diabetic ketoacidosis in those people who are using SGLT2 inhibitors on top of uh, insulin therapy. And so um, proper risk mitigation strategies need to be in place. And the EMEA therefore has said, well, let's limit the approval to those with a body mass index above 27, the obese patients with type 1 diabetes that we see more and more today because of course you have to take extra carbohydrates in case of hypoglycemia. So many people actually gain more weight than they would like to. And in those patients, the risk benefit of maybe an added uh, additional risk of DKA, on the other hand, the benefit of all these things I've mentioned before, might be positive so that those are the patients that we start to get experience, whether those uh, risk mitigation strategies actually work or we need to find different ones.
0: Wonderful, thank you so much. And on the topic of ketoacidosis, would you recommend the use of technology such as keto and monitors to address that, particularly in type one patients receiving SGLT2 inhibitors?
3: Absolutely, and I, I guess that's really uh, also a kind of a, a shift uh, in, in the way that we have been thinking. Very similar to the way that in the old days we have measured urinary glucose, then there was blood glucose, now we have continuous glucose mani- uh, monitoring. Uh, Urinary ketone monitoring was there for for many years, unpopular, many people didn't do it. But now we have devices for blood ketone monitoring. And the nice thing is the blood ketones are measuring beta-hydroxybutyrate, which is really the metabolite that is the uh, the single metabolite that tells you about the development of DKA. While urinary ketone monitors acetoacetate, which is just uh, further uh, downstream and is much slower to show uh, the danger of DKA and also is much slower in going away when actually the problem is already resolved in the blood. So the blood ketone monitoring really gives us a point of care testing, which is in real time showing you your risk of uh, DKA and uh, alerts you that something is going on.
0: Excellent, thank you. And my last question, for any patients exhibiting symptoms of diabetic ketoacidosis, what management strategies would you recommend?
3: Well, uh, we have proposed something called the STITCH protocol uh, for those people who are on SGLT2 inhibitors and who actually have signs of elevated ketone levels. This means the ST for stopping the SGLT2 inhibitor immediately because once you don't take it, of course, then you reduce this uh, shift towards ketogenesis. And the, the most important learning, which is counterintuitive to, to our patients, is. If you feel unwell and you're on a SGLT2 inhibitor and the DKA is evolving, you need both insulin and carbohydrate. And that's of course not what comes into your mind when you're feeling nauseous and and maybe even vomiting. Uh, But once you have insulin and if you have not a very high sugar, you have to give carbohydrate, then the ketones go away quickly. Uh, because this is the way that they are metabolized and then the risk of DKA is going down And if you have a blood ketone meter you immediately see that your values are improving But it's the part of learning because obviously a patient who doesn't feel well first thing he does I, I don't eat because I don't feel well and I don't take insulin because I don't eat and that's exactly what we have to change That's a piece of education. We have to tell the patients listen if you take a SGLT2 inhibitor Measure your blood glucose and then follow the stitch protocol, stop the inhibitor, insulin IC carbohydrate H hydrate.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much for your time at this conference. My pleasure.
1: Next, Professor Jens juhl Holst provides a quick overview of his session on gastric peptides and their use as actionable targets in type 2 diabetes.
0: What is the most interesting thing you've learned so far at this conference?
4: So I've been particularly participating in sessions about glucagon, uh, which is one of my old favorites, and uh, there's a lot about it here. And it seems that glucagon has got a revival these days from many perspectives. And our own perspective is, of course, that uh, we are all trying to understand what its role is in diabetes, and that was certainly one of the main topics today. Also, there was a large session this morning, and also there was an an all presentation session for two hours. So it's been four hours of glucagon, which is really amazing. Uh, So what what were the main uh, things? It's still difficult. It's still difficult to understand. And one of the things that we have trouble in understanding is why does glucose normally inhibit glucagon secretion? So there were a lot of molecular mechanisms uh, that were proposed and with more or less uh, convincing arguments, I would say. (laughs) So... Um, that has been a, a major thing today and so tomorrow uh, I will be participating in and, and I've also followed other sessions about incretins and incretin therapies and diabetes of course where we now have this um, striking discrepancy between groups that promote the use of GIP antagonists for diabetes use and those that promote the use of GIP agonists for diabetes therapy And the idea is that both of them seem to do the same thing. And I'm going to show experiments and experimental data where you get almost identical results in experimental animals with GIP agonism and GIP antagonism. So what I will be proposing tomorrow is a little bit technical thing about receptor internalization and arrest and recruitment, which are some of the molecular details of GIP's action on the beta cells. But that's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, I'm pretty sure that we can't resolve the problem, but but, but the thing is, of course, that um, the, there are clinical results out there that, uh, that show that a combined GLP-1-GIP agonist has tremendous results on body weight and hemoglobin A1C in type 2 diabetic individuals. And uh, I mean, that is, it's, it's so, such a powerful effect that everybody, you know, has shifted his or minds and said, this is really interesting. We have to dive into GIP from now on and many companies are doing that, many laboratories. So it's a reality. I mean, we have to face it. There's really something new going on here. So uh, people working with that, they're, they're busy these days.
0: Marvelous. And do you see those dual agonists or dual antagonists becoming more of a useful therapeutic in the future?
4: I'm pretty sure that we will see uh, combined therapies and um, from a company perspective, um, the use of monomolecular uh, agonists or com- combinations, or dual agonists, is a big uh, advantage because it is much, much, much cheaper to carry through a development program with a monomolecular agonist than with a combination of two compounds, because you have to uh, do the full regulatory um, uh, process on on both of them if you, if you have if if you have a combination rather than a monomolecular. So it's 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 a, a tremendous advance, advantage, and perhaps also a little bit from the patient's point of view that. Uh, I mean, if, if there are injectables, you'll have to inject yourself once with one and perhaps twice with the other. <clears throat> but in principle, from the medical point of view, uh, there's, there are theoretical advantages from combining things so that you have full control of what you add in from one side and from the other side. Uh, so so from that point of, of view, uh, it's not so sensational with the co-agonists, but I'm pretty sure that the combination therapies will be very effective. And there are, <coughs> There are wonderful, uh, powerful combinations on their way. One is GLP-1 glucagon combinations. There's still a lot of work to be done and some of it has been touched upon here at the Congress. Um, There's still a lot of work to be done in that respect, but the idea here is that you can combine the very powerful effects of glucagon on food intake and also, as shown in actually one of the studies in the poster session yesterday. Um, You can do that without interfering too much with glucose regulation, which will come as a surprise to some. There was a a long-acting glucagon agonist uh, shown in one of the posters. Um, And there will be uh, other uh, GLP-1, GIP co-agonists as well. Um, I would like to mention that there are also co-administration, co-agonism for GLP-1 and PYY, which is the company or which is the thing we see in the patients with bariatric surgery. Uh, because that is what is released after the meals in these patients. So that combination should have unprecedented uh, weight losing properties. And uh, although these are early days for the combination, uh, there are some studies. um, We have done some ourselves and I presented some where we do see these very powerful effects on food intake of the combination of GLP-1 and PYY. And then there is uh, amylin and uh, GLP-1. Amylin again is also very powerful suppressor of appetite and where a long-acting amylin seems to be doing fantastic things and uh, the combination of GLV-1 and that is also going to be extremely exciting to follow because it seems to be very, very powerful. So I think there is a lot of things happening. So uh, compared to previous congresses, uh, the focus on obesity is of course big. And, and, and we are now not, you know, dealing with three, four kilograms of weight losses. We are up in the two-digit figures. Uh, We're beginning to really move the field. We're beginning to see some very powerful effects on this. And that has tremendous importance for both diabetes and for obesity as such. Because there's no doubt that the best therapy for type 2 diabetes, that is weight loss. So uh, if you can get that, well, you're in business. Magnificent, and finally, what are your thoughts on the focusing on cardiorenal outcomes and more of that level of data at this congress? So, so of course, um, there's a big emphasis on the SGLT two inhibitors and the renal outcomes, and that is justified. This is sensational, really. It is fantastic and it's really a great relief for the patients that we finally have a, a therapy for the diabetic uh, kidney disease that uh, is so such a big problem and it's really really deserves all the attention it can get I, i'm very impressed with that i, I must say it's, it's fantastic there are also effects of the glp1 agonists on on renal disease and we'll have to see uh when, once they start to compete you know again so why not, in the best of all worlds, combine the two, because they're likely to have completely different mechanisms of action where GLP-1s are perhaps likely to interfere with vascular function and atherogenesis, and the other one has this very mechanistic effect of, of losing the glucose in the urine and interfering with sodium transport in the kidney. So, so that is that is uh, uh, that is completely justified. The other thing, of course, is the cardiovascular business, and that's a little bit harder because we don't have really a good understanding of the mechanisms of action of, be it the GLP-1 agonists or the SGLT2 inhibitors, for that matter. But that shouldn't stop us from looking into it, of course. Um, and fortunately, there is now sufficient data to s- to state that yes, there is a good effect on uh, cardiovascular disease of both groups of. Pharmaceuticals, the GLP-1s are particularly good perhaps at preventing and treating atherogenic lesions. The SGLT-2s inhibitors are very good at treating what is very important these days, heart failure. And that's because their mechanism of action is related to uh, the the pathogenic process involved in heart failure. So there are, again, two uh, wonderful effects. And again, one is so tempted to combine the two because then, in principle, you should b- obtain benefit from both, and, uh, and a combination of, of benefits because they're not acting on the same mechanism. So you sh- you're likely to have additive and very good effects. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time today, Professor.
1: Finally, Professor Didak Mauricio presents his personal highlights from the conference with a particular focus on the CONCLUDE study.
5: I would point out uh, yesterday's session uh, on the CONCLUDE trial. You know there was, uh, uh, I guess there was much interest in in seeing these results. Uh, This trial was uh, designed to test the hypothesis that degludec would be superior in terms of overall Hypoglycemia incidence in uh, patients that are clearly at, at higher risk of hypos. This is in contrast with, with the BRIGHT trial, okay, that was clearly, I mean, you could go through the, the clinical characteristics of, of patients, and those included in the CONCLUDE trial are clearly long. Long, have clearly longer uh, disease duration and higher risk and uh, comorbidities that, that predispose to, to hypos. And uh, we could see that the primary outcome uh, was not met, so they could not show a significant difference in terms of overall hypoglycemia between Degludec and the comparator, which was glagin uh, uh, U300 um i thought when they showed the, the 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 that there was no clear superiority that they wouldn't go further in the exploration of the outcomes and the secondary outcomes but they did and this is in contrast with with what uh another novel this trial did uh previously like the on a six trial there. They showed that there was not uh, No, no signal there so they wouldn't go further in the analysis, but they did and of course they they showed some uh, differences in terms of severe hypoglycemia and, uh, and nocturnal hypoglycemia especially in, in the follow-up period and uh, I would recommend I mean I would uh, I cannot check. I, I did not check that, but uh, this session uh, is probably available free to 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 see the, all the the results. Thomas Piber presented the, the the design and the and the workup of the trial and the the problems they had with these meters. Um, I would recommend to go through that because that that may have impacted on the final uh, results of the trial. But what I liked most was the critical appraisal that uh, Stefano del Prato did. I think, honestly, he he had a quite balanced uh, overview of the results, and he touched the main uh, critical points and I would say that the final conclusion is that we cannot draw any final conclusion. We have many questions coming from this trial, both in terms of uh, the effect of these new uh, analogues, uh, long long, uh, lasting analogues, but also in general for diabetes trials. And especially for hypo so for those aiming at assessing uh, hypoglycemia so I would that's that's as I told you I could not attend all the sessions and I usually after the meeting go through the presentations because you 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 know that there are many simultaneous. so of course mine is uh, a biased uh, view because that it's biased by my own interests. so I could not then uh, I couldn't attend all the sessions but I would recommend to go through the here is the uh, online uh, sessions, and that's especially the, the, the latter, the conclude trial session? It's very illustrative, even for medical students. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah.
0: Yes, I agree. We were in attendance as well. Yeah. Uh, I particularly enjoyed the comment that the conclude trial was inconclusive. Yeah. Um, but as you said, the other sub analysis groups couldn't be conclusive due to uh, the trial not meeting its primary endpoint. I believe Dr. Phyllis Samakis describes them as hypothesis generating, but would they influence any of your treatment decisions when deciding between IGLA-300 or Degladec?
5: That's a good question. <laughs> it depends, you know, uh, we have to to, to, to learn and to teach our younger colleagues that we should have enough tools to interpret what we find out there in the literature, in the meetings. So that's why I, I, I told you that uh, this was quite illustrative of on how you use the scientific information that may have an influence that sometimes is not based in uh, in what you in, in, in the conclusions that you could draw from scientific information so i guess that no one is, is quite happy about the results because they i mean they they will show the results but i, I have a big question mark on whether I understand that the paper is submitted and will will probably uh, very soon be available and my question there is what will be the task of the reviewers and the editors there? Uh, I understand that they have uh, very good medical uh, writing uh, resources to address everything but I think that the final message that the journal uh, is going to do the, is is the, is the issue on which it uh, the the final message they can they can uh, throw out uh, throw out there. Um, it depends on whether they they let them include this as as a conclusive uh, issue regarding the trial, or just if the reviewers say, okay, you, you may show what, what you have done, but you have to stress there that you, this is what you said, hypothesis generating. And this is a very sensitive uh, matter.
0: Wonderful, thank you so much for your yeah. comprehensive response.
1: This brings us to the end of this conference special. To reiterate the key takeaways, the Pioneer trials indicate that oral semaglutide is an effective formulation of the compound, SGLT2 inhibitors are a new avenue in treating type 1 diabetes, and trials of normal treatments are continually ongoing.
0: If you'd like to hear more from us on the latest developments in diabetes, you can subscribe to the podcast across all major apps or stream individual episodes from our website. If you found this episode useful, please leave us a review or tweet us at at DKIPractice. You can also access our free accredited CME content at knowledgeandpractice.eu. Thank you for joining.
1: We'll be back with our regularly scheduled episodes in October and look forward to joining you again then.